Sego. I'm John Kane, and this is Let's Talk Native. In a couple of weeks, I will be joined by a researcher who has spent several years, almost a decade, looking at the deaths associated with Indian boarding slash residential schools. Preston McBride, back in 2013, wrote specifically about the deaths and cover-up of deaths at the Carlisle Indian School in Pennsylvania. He has since expanded his research into four of the over 500 schools where Native children were abused to eliminate their Native identity. Schools that all operated under the same motto or slogan, kill the Indian, save the man. But that's not what I want to talk about today. I'm not going to try to quantify numbers. I'm not going to talk specifically about the deaths, the manner of deaths, the number of deaths. That's for another day. But what I want to talk about is this notion of reconciliation and forgiveness. You know, back in 2015, Pope Francis asked indigenous people, he did this in Bolivia, I believe, asked indigenous people for forgiveness. He apologized. He apologized and asked for forgiveness for the role the Catholic Church played in the grave sins of colonialism. He did this even as he was preparing to canonize one of the specific grave sinners, Una Parasera, who he did indeed canonize and turned into one of the Catholic saints. As he visited the United States and this conversation about forgiveness and his overtures to indigenous peoples continued, there was still no mention of any repudiation of the doctrine of Christian discovery, which is essentially the not just the church dogma, but the legal foundation for many and much of this abuse to have occurred. There was also no mention of residential schools or the role that the Catholic Church played in those residential schools, and I'll talk about that a little bit more. And there was certainly no contrition. Contrition is, is the act that you do. It's the performance of a, of a specific act that you do for, to, to earn forgiveness. And now, let me say flat out, there is no word in Mohawk for forgiveness. So the idea and that concept of forgiving somebody for a specific wrongdoing is not something that is embedded in our culture. That is, uh, you know, that's, that's a Christian thing. And I'm not saying other Native cultures don't have some, something for that. We do have words about restoration and settling an issue, but, but not necessarily this idea of forgiveness. But within Christian faith, forgiveness comes at a cost. And that cost is called contrition. Or they actually refer to penance. What is the penance that you will pay? What is, what, what is the act that you will do? Now, look, in, in Catholic uh, processes and uh, um, 
ceremonies, they have this thing called confession, where you go in and you confess, and and then the the priest tells you, well, you say five of these prayers, or you do prayers associated with their rosary beads, or or whatever, and and that's the penance that is that is, or the contrition that is done. Those are the acts of contrition, right? But there was no acts of contrition by the by the Pope. There were there were no specific deeds done by the church other than an admission but if all if, if all that is required is an admission of guilt or fault for forgiveness with, with no act of contrition well it doesn't it, it seems to make sense why we don't have that as a part of our concept or or any of the things that we believe in so that was in 2015 but here so here we go again just last week while world leaders were gathering first in Rome and then going on to uh, some climate change, uh, COP26 or whatever it is, I don't know. While they were gathering in, these, in, in, in Rome specifically, Justin Trudeau grabbed some headlines. Now, first, you had lots of headlines associated with the president of the United States sitting with the Pope, one of, only the second Catholic president of the United States. And... And again, lots of photo ops and headlines. Then Justin Trudeau makes a formal invitation or request, actually, of the Pope to go to for the Pope to travel to Canada to address indigenous peoples over the role the Catholic Church played in residential schools in Canada specifically. Now, for some reason, even as those headlines were were being made, there was no crossover. There was no conversation about the U.S. And, and the residential school issues there. Now, of course, this comes in the wake of some of the numbers that, that continue to grow um, as far as confirmed or irrefutable evidence is, goes uh, associated with the deaths and the marked and primarily unmarked graves, uh, if not mass graves, at a few of the residential schools uh, on the Canadian side. And I say a few, we're still talking about a handful. And that number has now grown, and, and, I, and I don't know exactly um, how those numbers are actually attributed, but the numbers are somewhere above 7,000. 7,000 children dead at residential schools, buried in unmarked graves, most of them, at residential schools in Canada. Now, as those numbers grow, we can only guess what the confirmed numbers will be. Because even though Native people have, have known of these deaths, you know, look, since, since they occurred, you know, some because of witnessing them as other children in these schools, but the families who lost children, there's never been a full accounting. And in fact, <laughs> it's interesting that you have the, the Prime Minister of Canada asking for the Pope of only one of the churches, mind you. It wasn't just the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church may have been the single most um, uh, active in terms of the, the this role, or the, as I call the unholy marriage of church and state in both the U.S. and Canada uh, in the operation of these schools. But they weren't the only one. But even as, as, the, as Justin Trudeau was asking this, it's, it must be noted that Canada did launch its Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and it operated from 
around 2008 to 2015. Out of that came a report, and in that report, there were certain statements, some considered bold statements. Um, one of the bold statements was, was calling the residential schools um, cultural genocide. And I have a problem with that, with that definition. Because, and, and I'll get into this a little bit more in just a moment, but it, it, this idea of putting a word in front of the word genocide to somehow make it seem different than genocide is, is, a, is a problem. But, but I'll come back to that. But so this Truth and Reconciliation Commission takes place, uh, or ends, it is decommissioned, it is closed in 2015. But of the almost 100 um, actions that were called upon in that TRC, almost none have been done. And among those actions was this, this request, this action that was asked of Canada, which was to confirm the number of children and where these, who these children are and where they were located as far as the deaths at these residential schools. And Canada refused. One of the things that came out of the commission was an acknowledgement that part of the reason that these, these graves and grave sites, these, these graveyards, these cemeteries existed at residential schools was because Canada didn't want uh, um, to pay to send either... Um, either the dead bodies of these children home, you know, or see to it that they didn't die in the first place, or send them home while they were sick, which is, which is also interesting because, and we'll talk about that more when when uh, Preston McBride joins me in a couple of weeks. So Canada didn't want to pay; they didn't want to foot the bill for these children to be sent home, either ill or or um, after their deaths. So they could be buried properly. So just dig a hole and bury them. That was part of what, what came out of these, this Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So here we are still having this conversation about reconciliation. There's been some truth, not complete truth, not complete honesty, not a full expose on what children actually went through and how many children died in these schools. There's, there's never been that accounting. But we're still talking about recon reconciliation. Well, what does reconciliation mean? I mean, reconciliation, by definition, means, and, and keep in mind, the first word in the definition is restoration of friendly relations. Well, I don't know when friendly re relations ever really existed between Native people and, uh, and, and, co and the colonizers. I mean, there has never been anything but tension in the coexistence of native population and settler colonialism. I mean, that's, that's just inherent in, in settler colonialism. So, but it's interesting that the word restoration is a part of that, uh, that definition of reconciliation. Now, also, most people are more familiar with the idea of reconciling their checkbook, right? Reco balancing the books, making financial accounts consistent. That's one of the other definitions of reconciliation. And you know what? The balancing of the books 
is actually a more accurate definition of reconciliation. Because what does restoration of friendly relations mean if no friendly relations ever existed? So, again, here we are. We are at this place where we're talking about reconciling, reconciliation for incredible crimes. Now, again, let me, let me, again, let me go back to the definition of genocide. Genocide means any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group, such as killing members of the group, check, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, check, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, check, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, check, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group, check. Now, these five criteria, any one of which constitutes genocide, read like the playbook for, for residential schools. The, the, the third one, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, that was the strategy. That's exactly what residential schools were intended to do. It was in, they were intended to bring about the conditions to destroy Native people. It was, sure, it was, it was population, it was depopulation, it was killing children. It was abusing children. But the, but the mere act of assimilation, which is about taking away the identity. The, the, before the word genocide was even coined, the word denationalization was associated with this crime. And denationalization was stripping away the national character of a people and imposing another's national character upon them. I mean, that's exactly what, what assimilation is. Assimilation is genocide. And that's what these schools were about. So what did these, what did these schools do? They killed children. Well, first they stole children. First, you know, first they, they took children from their homes, from their families, from their communities, from their territories, and put them in, in these schools. That's, that's what was done as, as the first part of, of these schools, to take children, which is you know, obviously one of the criterion for, for uh, one of the definitions of genocide. Now, it's also important to understand, but just, just the idea of taking Native children from their homelands is a part of stripping identity. Most of the, our words for who we are, and I'm not talking about Indians or Native Americans or First Nations. I'm talking about the words that we use in our own language for who we are. I'm, I'm going to go hago. And that means the people of the land of Flint. So while we describe ourselves as, as the people, we also describe ourselves as the people of a place. We describe the land as a part of our identity. 
So the very act of stripping children from their families and their communities and their territories is about stripping identity. So what else happened to our children? Our children were killed. They were raped. They were abused physically, sexually, uh, psychologically. They, among the physical abuse that our children were, uh, were uh, abuse that was inflicted on our children was sterilization. Young girls were operated on. <laughs> they had medical procedures performed upon them to make sure they would never have children again. Again, definition of genocide. Assimilation. You know, among the things that were done that, that are you know, easy to visualize it was chopping off the hair, stripping away any clothing, any items that may have had any cultural significance or any, any, any identity, identity associated with them. Destroying our language, refusing our children the right to speak in their, in their own tongue. A steady indoctrination of Christianity. And regardless of what church was involved, there were, there were hours and hours of, of church indoctrination on, upon, um, um, you know, heaped upon these children. They had inadequate health care. The death rate at, at these schools oftentimes topped over 50%. That meant a child, that 50% of the, of the time, a child would not survive the school. And that was doing in no small part to the uh, to the, not only malnutrition and abuse, but to inadequate health care. Tuberculosis took its toll. But even things that were non-deadly, non-life-threatening, could become fatal. Injuries, you know, treatable ailments because these children would not be treated and because their health was allowed to deteriorate. The other thing was we had thousands of years of culture and nurturing and education that was just severed by taking children away from their parents and their grandparents and their community. I mean, they called these things schools, but they were the antithesis of schools. They actually cut education. They destroyed education, the native education. And, and it's not like these schools were really had ever any intent of somehow educating children indoctrination into, into you know, all the, these um, prayer groups and, and Bible studies did not enlighten these children in any. It did not provide them with a life skill. None of these children came out of these schools with anything even close to an education that would line them up for a career. So what, was the, what were the effects of these schools? Well, clearly, our population was diminished. Not only, and look, when all is said and done, the number of children who will have perished at these schools 
and I'm not talking about after the schools, but at these schools, will likely top over 50,000 children and likely will reach closer to 100,000. And that's when you add up the numbers from, from the Canadian side and on the U.S. side of that imaginary line. Now, you also not only killed children in these schools, you altered so much of who they were that the, abil- the ability to parent or, or reproduce, I mean, obviously sterilization took place at these schools. So you literally changed that whole chain of ancestry and progeny. You you changed it. You altered it. So our population decreased and and decreased significantly. And with a decrease in population that was no longer being wiped out by massacres and and some of the other things that were imposed upon native people to to ensure our deaths and our depopulation. This enabled the federal government, both the U.S. and Canadian side, to do things that they they may have had more trouble doing had our population had been intact. Things like um, taking lands. Look, a lot of the land um, seizures the illegal land transfers that took place, they were always justified because the argument was we had more land than we need. And Americans needed all that land, and we didn't. In fact, Native people could be herded up not only on quote-unquote reservations, but now taking all the children, 83%, probably closer to 85 or 90% of all children at, at one time or another, were were housed in these schools. It was a law. It was required by law, both on the U.S. and Canadian side. And in fact, if you didn't surrender your children, you as adults would would undergo some form of of, of punishment, including things to make sure that you, you that you would not be provided food. Your community would be deprived of food. So this was this was the condition that existed for over 100 years. And we could argue that that it existed for over 150 years. So our lands could be taken because our population had been diminished. And the the assessment made by US and Canada was that we didn't need the land. They had transferred our lifestyles so much that the requirement for for hunting lands and for uh, lands for gathering whether it was you know you gathering wild rice or you know or or whether it was it was agriculture that we didn't need as much land as as we had so it justified the taking of lands and during that 100 to 150 years there was extreme land loss that occurred. And the residential schools was, were a part of that justification for stripping away lands. Also, we, we had lands, uh, land use that was changed, where we lost control 
of what could happen, not only on our lands, but on the lands around us. And you know, so we have things like highways, New York State Thruway going through Seneca territory. We have roads and highways, dams, rivers that are altered, that are changed, where, where not only are we deprived of land and timber, but water. We had our lands considered sacrifice zones. So if a mineral was discovered on our lands, whether it was gold, whether it was uranium, whether it was copper, whether, whether it was fossil fuels, our lands could be taken for mining. That's all some of what, what transpired during, during the same period of time. Our lands became sacrifice zones for, for pipelines, and that's still a battle that goes on today. They became sacrifice zones for, for not only some of the dangerous mining that I talked about, but also for dumping, nuclear waste. Agent Orange down in, in the territories of the San Carlos Apache, just dumping. So this is how our lands and our control of lands changed during the same period of time. And of course, then we have laws that change, that try to change who we are. The Indian Act on the Canadian side, the Indian Citizenship Act in the U.S. The, the Indian Act was passed in 1876, the first time, its first iteration of it. And of course, it would continue to change. And these laws, both on the U.S. and Canadian side, would change how we were defined by them. Not only the Indian Act, but the Indian Citizenship Act, as I said, where the U.S. Senate declared that Native people were U.S. citizens. Now, why would that be necessary? Well, because we weren't U.S. citizens. And even though in, in the 1860s, when they, when they amended their constitution to, to, to include former slaves as U.S. citizens, it didn't apply to us. Why? Because the language of those amendments suggested that, that the people had to be under the jurisdiction of the United States. And you know what? In 1865, we weren't under the jurisdiction. In 1924, we weren't under U.S. jurisdiction. So going forward, in 1934, they passed the Indian Reorganization Act. And the whole crux of the Indian Reorganization Act was to establish the federal definition of our status. And just like on the Canadian side, we were defined as tribes, bands, or nation of Indians subordinate to the laws of the colonial system, Canada or the United States. These all happened in the midst and, and while residential schools were taking its toll. Look, let's, when, we talk, when we talk about residential schools, we talk about the children well, the children who would survive those schools still had a part of them that never survived. They were stripped of culture. They were stripped of language. They were stripped of identity. Those children who would be the adults who would have to live through the Indian Act and the Citizenship Act and the Reorganization Act, they had already been altered. They had already been affected, damaged. That expression, kill the Indian, save the man, that meant that 
that children were either killed or had substantial parts of them killed so that what survived, if anything, was a man that would meet the definition of the U.S. or Canada. Now, keep in mind, we were not considered human beings based on the doctrine of Christian discovery. And the doctrine of Christian discovery asserted that if the Christian nations of Europe came upon lands that were only occupied by pagans, they could consider that land void of human population. Terra nullius. They could claim that land for themselves because no other human beings had claimed that land. That's part of the church's role in colonialism. Not even getting to the, to the residential schools. So when they said kill the Indian, save the man, there was this belief that if they could kill a, enough of that creature that they, were, they considered non-human, they could humanize us. They could, they could convert us, transform us into human beings at the, at the lowest level of their society, but human beings nonetheless. That's the belief. That's what this is all about. So what I come to is not a plea to Canada and the United States. I'm not telling Canada and the United States how they can achieve reconciliation. What I'm telling our people, what I'm telling Native people, is that we must reject any conversation of reconciliation that does not include the restoration of lands and autonomy. Because that is what was stripped away. Yes, the, our children, our, our people were killed. But those who survived no longer had the same status. No longer had the same lands to return to. Look, as we debate whether these unmarked graves should all be uh, exhumed, whether the children who were buried in these unmarked and mass graves, whether they should be exhumed and, and returned home, how can they be returned home? Many of those homes didn't exist for them anymore because their people had been moved. And I don't mean just the trail of tears moved. I mean piece by piece. Most people don't realize that many Native territories are almost completely checkerboarded. Through the Dawes Act and the Allotment Act, they were able to gain access to more and more lands. Much, much of the lands that were in Native control, Native title, prior to these residential schools, no longer were considered Native titled lands when these, close, these schools would finally be closed. So how do you return people? How do you return the remains of children when those homes have been disrupted? So, I mean, that's a debate that needs to be had. And, and I'm, not, I, I, I'm not saying what can and can't happen. But I know if you consider what was done to our lands while 
100 years or 150 years of residential schools existed, I think it would be very difficult to determine homes and homelands for 50 to 100,000 children who perished in these schools. Today, I heard a statistic that said only 22% of the native population in the United States lives on native lands. Now, I don't know if that's true. <laughs> Look, there's a lot of debate on the accuracy of, of the head count, the census, and all of that stuff you know, when it comes to, to native people. So I don't know what that 22% of what population... There's a lot of debate also because of the, the census um, results um, about whether our population has increased, has had, has, has had a significant increase since the last census 10 years ago, U.S. census. And the argument is that, that oh, yes, that it's increased. But the problem is that anybody can claim to be native per, uh, a native person. Census are done through self-identification. There's no verification of, of whether somebody is a native person or not when they say, oh, yeah, put me down as a Native American. So I, what those numbers really look like, I don't know. And what the actual population that, that lives off territory looks like compared to those of us who live on territory, I don't know. But I will say that 100 to 150 years of, of, of schooling <laughs> being done in the form of residential schools, day schools, and you know, even, even later in, into foster care, because many children never would, re re would return home. Many children had no homes to go to. They had no parents to return to after their stint in residential schools. But after 100 to 150 years of that, there would be a big effort to relocate Native people off territories. Not only because some of those territories no longer existed, but this was an ongoing part of the assimilation, the genocide of assimilation that would occur, try to push our, our, our people into, into cities, into urban environments. So there are Native people, but what part of those people, that 78 to 80% of our people that is claimed to no longer live on Native territories, how much of our identity is intact? So when I argue today that any conversation, any negotiation associated with, I wouldn't even get into forgiveness, but into, into any kind of reconciliation over residential schools, their definition of reconciliation begins with the word restoration. I'm not interested in restoring friendly relations. Restore land. And I'm not saying all of it. I know I, I get I get some pushback from people who say, what do you mean? You can't expect us to get all our land back. Look, I said land restoration. And land restoration can mean different things to different people. Because I'll tell you, converting Bears Ears and the Grand Staircase into a national monument is not restoration 
in my book. Now, maybe some people think that's that's enough restoration because it'll prevent, you know, more desecration and uh, and, you know, extraction industries. Whatever comes out of Oak Flats. And by whatever means they if there is success in stopping Oak Flats from becoming a copper mine. We can debate on whether it, it ends up being restoration or not. So, yes, I'm absolutely in favor of, of land back, the land back movement, reclaiming and regaining lands. But and I'll tell you, <laughs> the first and easiest parcels of land that we should reclaim should be every, the sites of every one of those residential schools. And every one of them should be converted into a Holocaust museum. Regardless of whether those bodies are exhumed or not, there should be an effort to enshrine and to memorialize what took place there. No one should be allowed to forget what took place in those residential schools. But when we talk about restorations of lands, we're talking about restoration of control over lands. Look, <laughs> there are bits and pieces of land reclamation and, and restoration of autonomy that happen all the time. Never in the sweeping way that it needs to. And, and this, this happens both on the U.S. and the Canadian side. Most of it comes at a tremendous cost to Native people, not so much to Canada and the United States. But we have land claims issues. We have custodial, custody or custodial issues associated with land. Yes, we're fighting pipelines, line three, Dakota Access Pipeline. We're fighting those things. That's part of restoration. Trying to stop encroachment on our territories, like at Landback Lane. Trying to stop development of our territories and development of lands near our territories that will impact us. Whether it's the stamp plant in Tonawanda or whether it's a highway that goes through ancestral lands. This is all part of that land restoration. It's not just a, a, you know, a wholesale removal of white people who live on our lands. No, I, that's not what I'm talking about. I know that's unrealistic. But there are many areas where restoration of our control over those lands is very possible. And in fact, most of the lands that we claim or that are recognized and distinguished as, as native lands, we still don't have full control over those lands because of the, our battles with the state and federal governments or the provincial and Canadian federal governments. So when we talk about restoration, land restoration, that's part of the debate. Autonomy, that's another part of the debate. Look, the United States voted against the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples in 2007. So did Canada, so did Australia, so did New Zealand. Those four nations voted against it. And we know exactly why the United States voted against it. Because they didn't like the definition of self-determination. 
This idea that we could exist with our own autonomy. That's what the United States opposed. That's why they voted against it. And when they tried to redefine what they wanted to call self-determination, and they said, well, we mean internal self-determination, that we would be given limited controls to do certain things within our population. But they were clear. The National Security Council, they were clear that they objected and they opposed the notion that we would have the right to assert sovereignty over our lands. So this is where restoration of lands and restoration of autonomy come in. The UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples did get passed through the General Assembly of the United Nations. It's a re relatively toothless, non-legally binding document, but it does establish the minimum standard for dignity and survival of indigenous people at the hands, that is, of their colonial overlords, <laughs> the colonial state around them. It is a pretty weak document. But among the things that, is, that are asserted in that document is the notion that nation states must achieve consensus before they adopt any practice, policy, or, or action that will impact Native people. Or in the effort to reconcile differences. That true reconciliation of a dispute can only happen with our free, prior, and informed consent. Not our consultation, not consultation, consensus. Free, prior, and informed consent. This is something that neither Canada nor the United States are, are willing to accept. So, how can we have a conversation about reconciliation of a hundred years of well-defined genocide where the, the genocide was specifically inflicted upon children, again, in this unholy marriage between church and state, various church, Christian denominations and both the United States and Canada, and, and, and beyond that? Because let's be honest. The standard established by the United States with this kill the Indian, save the man strategy would not only make its way into Canada, but it would make its way into Australia, New Zealand, Africa, and South America. Adolf Hitler praised the efficiency with which the United States dealt with indigenous populations. He looked at the United States as the model for what he would do to the Moors and the Jewish population and, uh, and, and all the, the undesirables that Adolf Hitler viewed as worthy of extermination. So this is, this is what we're trying to reconcile? You can't give us the lives back that you took. But what can happen is we can have restoration of land and restoration of our autonomy. We want to dial back. And look, not everybody's going to want this. <laughs> so let me, let me be clear. There are many Native people have, who have really gone past the brink 
of restoring their true identities. I'm mean, look, there are a couple of nations that declare that they're Christian nations. <laughs> there are some that are so enraptured by both the church and the state that committed the crimes against them that they may be irretrievable. But the right to assert our autonomy on our lands and to reclaim lands that were illegally stripped from our people has to be a part of the conversation. I don't know that we ever get true reconciliation, but we cannot be expected to have a conversation about forgiveness and reconciliation until the United States and Canada are prepared to have a conversation about restoration of lands and autonomy. Now, there's a lot of conversation about restitution. And in fact, again, the definition of reconciliation oftentimes talks about balancing the checkbook, you know, getting the uh, evening up the books. If you're going to assess a financial cost to what was inflicted upon Native people as a direct result and indirect result of residential schools, that number is going to be pretty dramatic. Now, I'm not rejecting the notion of, of payments being made, but there is no number, there is no amount of money that will ever buy reconciliation. And before we can even have that conversation about uh, establishing some value for restitution or reparations, as oftentimes referred to, we need to talk about restoration of lands and autonomy. And to do that is going to require a kind of dialogue that has never occurred before. I'm not talking about Barack Obama or Joe Biden inviting tribal leaders <laughs> who are only leaders by virtue of the FedRec system coming to Washington to, to negotiate a settlement. We know how this system works. We saw it with the Cabell suit. So I don't know, I don't know what the price tag is going to look like. But we can't even have that conversation without having a conversation about restoration of lands and autonomy. Now, again, I said earlier on in the program, here we go again. But we haven't even started this conversation on the, on the U.S. side. Canada's still trying to figure out. And now Justin Trudeau is trying to deflect some of it to the Pope. But the churches were employed by Canada and the United States to do their bidding. The real responsibility still rests with Canada and the United States. Now, I'm not saying the criminals involved weren't church officials. And if any of them still um, live and breathe today, they, sh they should be held accountable. There are still Nazi war criminals who are being prosecuted today. There's no reason why, why church officials can't, can't be. And that includes all the denominations involved. But in the U.S., we, we, this conversation hasn't even begun. That's why I look, so much, look forward so much to having Preston McBride join us, because his research has been on schools on the U.S. side. And we need to have that conversation. And tokenizing a, a native interior secretary or propping up veterans, native veterans, because it's the national... Native American Heritage Month does not address any of this stuff. 
It's all lip service. It's all window dressing. We need to have tough conversations. And they are conversations that need to begin with us. We need to have those conversations. These have to be grassroots efforts. Because I'm telling you right now, those people who are federally recognized as the leaders of native territories are not the leaders of native territories and native peoples. Their authority comes from the federal government, from federal recognition, not from the clan system, not from the, our, our elders, not from our children. So we need to have some reconciliation. We need to restore some relationships within our territories. When I said at the beginning, I'm not making an appeal to the United States over this. What I'm saying is that we need to do some reconciliation ourselves, and we need to determine what our demands will be as the United States and Canada try to engage us in some conversation about what they're prepared to do about the 100 to 150 years of genocide that they committed during the residential slash boarding school era. There can be no reconciliation without restoration of land and autonomy. Thank you for checking out the show. As always, if you like what you hear, you can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash Let's Talk Native. You can follow us on Twitter at Let's Talk Native. You can also follow us on Instagram at Let's Talk Native TV. And you can join us on our Facebook group page. I am John Kane, and this is Let's Talk Native. Yahweh.